0: How's everybody doing? Great. Praise God. Uh, let me uh, just ask God for help before we open up the word today, and uh, then we'll begin with the scriptures. Heavenly Father, th- the most urgent need we have right now is to hear from you. There is no other need that's greater than that. We don't need to hear from a man, we don't need to hear ourselves think. We don't need to hear our own words. We need you to speak to us through the scriptures into the deepest parts of our heart. And so I plead with you, Father God, for my sake and for the sake of my friends, come into this place. Open the realities of the scriptures so that we can see them. Keep my mouth from error and magnify your glory and your worth and your beauty and what we see today, Father. I ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So as the the people of Israel um, prepared to enter the promised land, after 40 years in the wilderness, God, in Deuteronomy 8, tells them the following words through his servants, the first three verses of Deuteronomy 8. Through his servant Moses, he says this, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might, listen to this, humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not, and he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he, that is God himself, might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." This is the reason for the wilderness. Have you ever had a question about why the wilderness happened? This is the reason. God answers that question. Their humility, their confidence, their trust in him, that God would provide for every single need they have. That's why there was 40 years in the wilderness for the people of Israel, so that they would know through the provision of manna, this miraculous gift that God gave them, that they would know the truth that God himself was their provision, that God was sufficient for them because man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what God was teaching the people of Israel in the wilderness for four decades. And Jesus knew this. When Jesus began his ministry, you remember he was tempted by Satan after fasting for 40 days, not a coincidence. He was tempted to turn stones on the ground into loaves of bread so that he could eat. And we know that he could do this. And we saw this a few weeks ago when he fed the 5,000. But when that happens, when that temptation comes, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 to Satan. He says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So instead of doing an expedient miracle, to bring about physical bread so that he could stave off starvation. Jesus knows that his father is sufficient enough. Man doesn't live by physical bread alone. Man lives or dies based on the word of the living God. So at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus takes this truth from Deuteronomy 8 and he shoves it into Satan's face and he says, I trust my father with everything. Even on the brink of starvation. And so as we come to our studies now today, at the end of John chapter 6, this is the same lesson that God is teaching through his Son to us. That Christ is the true bread that has come down from heaven. And that he has given his life to the world. He's given his life for the life of the world even. He is the bread that we must eat for eternal life. This is the lesson that we've seen consistently over the past few weeks because man isn't satisfied or sustained eternally by any physical provision in this world. There's nothing in this world that can save us eternally, give us eternal life, except for the Word of God. John, uh, in his opening chapter of this book, and this was like two years ago for us, sorry. Sorry. In the opening chapter of his book, uh, he opens like this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then when he gets to verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that Word has a name. His name is Jesus. Jesus and Jesus Christ is the bread of life. So it's essential, and this is what we've seen in John 6, that we come to him, believe in him, partake in him, because God's final word word to the world is his son. There's no other way that we can have eternal life. And so with that in mind, I'd ask you to turn to John 6, verse 57. John 6, verse 57, uh, which is, part of the way through what we looked at last week, we're going to flow from what we read last week and then dovetail into what we're exploring today, which is really the crowd's response to all that Jesus has been saying. That's what we're going to see today. How do people take in what he's been saying? So Jesus finishes this brief sermon. This is, we're catching him halfway. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. That's the the manna that we just read about in Deuteronomy 8. Whoever feeds on this bread, Jesus says, will live forever. And then John tells us that Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples, not the 12 disciples, but the crowd that had been following him after he had fed 5,000 people, when many of his disciples heard it, all that he's just said in John 6, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take it fence at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So here we are finally at the end of Jesus' message in John 6. And his point, as we have seen week after week after week, is that he alone is the bread of life. Nothing in this world, nothing in the universe, can satisfy the soul of man but Jesus Christ. And in verse 35, as Lindsay read for us earlier, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the recurring theme of John 6, and now it comes to a head in verse sixty. In verse sixty, we start to see the response of these people. These are his uh, his disciples. These are people who are <clears throat> following him. Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee from where he fed the five thousand, and these people followed him across a sea. I don't know how many people you followed across the sea, but that shows some kind of commitment there. But then they get there, they hear him talk, and their response is, "This is a hard saying." what you're telling us about, you, about us feeding on you, about, you remember last week, is was very graphic, eating your flesh, drinking your blood. It was this intense language used to signify the intimacy and the necessity and the urgency of us coming to him in faith. They respond to this saying, it's hard for us to hear. This is extremely challenging, Jesus, what you're saying right now. And to be honest with you, Jesus, it's offensive. It's offensive to us. That's what they're saying here. We know that they're saying that, Because in verse 61, when Jesus in himself, not even hearing them do anything, in himself, he knows that the crowd is grumbling and complaining. He discerns their complaints and his response is immediate. Do you take offense at this? Does it bother you what I said? Are you outraged about me saying, come to me and feed on me? You don't need physical bread as much as you need me. Does that bother you? These are people who saw like the day before him take five loaves of bread, two fish, and feed over 5,000 human beings. And yet when he says these things to them, their response is unbelief. Who can listen to this, Jesus? This is a hard saying. Who can receive this kind of teaching? And so they're offended by Jesus. Now, what's interesting is what Jesus says next. He asks them, do you take offense at this? And then he asks them another question. A oh, strange question. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, ascending to where he was before? Now, why ask that question? We, we know from the book of John, I mean, if John was the only book that we had of the Bible. And it's not, praise God. But if that was the only book that we have of the Bible, we know that Christ is God the Son. He's the eternal Word who's been made flesh. He's been sent into this world by the Father, according to John 1.14, to show us the glory of the Father in the flesh, to dwell among us, to give us grace. And even in this chapter, John 6, as we've read each week, we've seen over and over about Him being the bread that comes down from heaven, so heaven is where the Son of Man was before. In fact, if you remember a few weeks back in John six forty six, he says, Jesus, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, talking about himself, he has seen the Father. So he's saying here that I was in the presence of God eternally. That's where the Son of Man comes from. And so for him as the Son of Man to ascend back to where he was before means to go to heaven, to ascend into the heavens. And we know that he's going to do this eventually after his death and resurrection. In fact, this is precisely what he does. He ascends into the heaven. But why, Jesus, ask that right here in the middle of John 6. Here's why. If they were offended by the words he said in John 6, His question is, would you not be offended if I just shown you my glory, displayed my glory by ascending into the heavens to be with my Father? Would that convince you? Would that make you believers in me? If I ascended into heaven, Jesus is saying, would you believe in me then? Jesus doesn't answer the question, which means it's a rhetorical question. And the answer is no. You would not believe me even if I ascended before your very eyes right now. And we know he means no because of what he says next. Instead of providing them with any evidence, he says, No, it, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This is a critical statement in John's gospel. This is a critical statement in the entire Bible. It's a massive statement. Jesus is saying that life, namely the life that he has been talking about this entire chapter, in fact, the entire book, eternal life, that life is given by the spirit of alone. The flesh is no help at all, he says. And when he says flesh here, he means natural human, cognitive understanding at the end of the day on things relating to eternal life, it has zero value. It will not get you there ever. That's what he means by saying the flesh is no help at all, which is remarkable because we live in a culture, we live in a society, even within circles in the church, where the idea that our flesh, our natural capacities of understanding are sufficient to make every kind of decision we want to make, including eternal life decisions, is pervasive. It's all over the church, but Jesus here says that that's not possible. The flesh is no help at all when it comes to the life that you need, eternal life. It demands, it requires the Spirit of God. We saw this a few weeks back when we looked at Romans 8, 7 through 8. Romans 8 Seven through eight, Paul says, The mind that is set on the flesh, the natural mind, is hostile to God. That's the default state. He says, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I want to be clear about this. When we read something like that, that doesn't mean it's a physical inability. Like, I can't walk through that wall. The cannot please God, the cannot obey God's law, the cannot receive um, anything from God that's in that verse is a moral response. I don't want to. I've got better things to do than that. It's like saying, that's a hard saying. Who can receive it? That's what Paul's talking about here. He's even more elaborate in his language in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Listen to this. Paul says, The natural person, which is almost the entire planet, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're foolish. They sound stupid and ridiculous. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is exactly the situation in John 6. The realities that Jesus has spoken about are, we said this last week, heavenly realities. They are heavenly things pulling from John 3. They are spiritual truths. Verse 63, he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's what he means. They're not natural earthly things. They are spiritual things underneath the the pictures that he has of the bread is the spirit and life flowing to them through these words. And therefore, even if they were to witness with their natural eyes, Jesus rising up into the heavens to be with his father, even seeing that firsthand would not be enough to convince them of who he is. In order for that to happen, the spirit must give them life. Earlier in that passage in in 1 Corinthians, uh, just the two verses above that, Jesus, or Paul, explains the experience of having the Holy Spirit in you and being able to understand what the Holy Spirit's saying. Listen to this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart, Paul's saying, he and those who are preaching with him, when they talk about the gospel with people, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. This is the Spirit giving life. And this life, Jesus says, is given, not just, it's not floating out there, it is given through words, which is very interesting. Think about this. Jesus has been performing signs since he began his earthly ministry. And those signs point to who he is. That's why you call them signs. They are signposts pointing to him. But he says the signs can't give you eternal life. Agreeing that I just did a miracle here doesn't give you eternal life. Only my words do that. My words give you eternal life. His words are what matter, not the miracles. Miracles help with the pointer, but the words that Jesus are speaking is ultimate, which sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 8, when God, after mentioning the miracle of manna, says, the miracle of manna is great, but you know what you really need? You need my words. Man can't live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. That verse, Deuteronomy 8.3, is like John 6 in miniature. It's like a mini John, John, John 6. There's a connection between the reality of the words of God and eternal life. The words are the medium through which the Holy Spirit brings us this life. But the big question we should have, is, well, why are they not believing Jesus? Like, what's going on here? They are grumbling at you, and they're offended. So what's happened here? Why is it that despite his speaking words that are the Spirit and life, why is it that they've responded in unbelief? Let's listen again to verse 63 and then push a little bit further in this passage. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are Spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then John, parenthetically and staggeringly says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then Jesus says something even more shocking. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Stunning. And it revisits something that Jesus has hammered repeatedly throughout John 6, and all that he said. If you remember verse 37, Jesus said, he, after seeing that the crowd had come to him and saying, you actually don't believe in me, you're just here for bread. He says this, all that the Father gives me, will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, my Father is actually sovereign, not theoretically sovereign. He's literally sovereign. And if he gives someone to me, if he's handed someone into my care, they will come to me every single one. And we know this is what Jesus means because he takes this statement and reverses it in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's a remarkable series of statements in one conversation. Jesus is saying that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them to him. They need to be drawn because they won't go on their own. They refuse to go on their own. The flesh is of no help at all. But if the Father draws them, if, as verse 45 told us, they are taught by God, not taught by just mere human wisdom, but if they're taught by the Spirit of God and that happens, then they'll come to Jesus and they will unfailingly come to Jesus. All that the Father gives me, not some. All come to me. This is what Jesus means when he says it is the Spirit who gives life. He's saying that the miracles I perform don't matter. I hope that you see them and I hope that you're encouraged by them, but they do not grant you eternal life. Whether it's feeding 5,000 people on the side of a mountain or whether it's rising into the heavens, into the clouds until you can't see me anymore, none of that will save you. The Spirit must infiltrate your world and give you life. The natural man will never see me for who I am, not in a trillion years years. Which is why Jesus repeats this same thing in response to their unbelief at the very end of all that he said. He says, this is why I told you earlier, no one can come to me. I mean, he's looking at people who do not believe him, and he's saying, I told you earlier this very thing, no one can come to me unless it is granted, given him by the Father. And his point is, that human beings naturally, in their flesh, are so addicted to their earthly desires, so enslaved to their own self, their pursuit of selfish things, sin, and all that encompasses that, so trapped in a state of willing and self-perpetrated rebellion, And so dead in their trespasses that it takes in order to bring them life an act of the living God. It can't happen naturally. In order for them to be set free from their slavery to sin, it takes the spirit of the living God. And it must be granted by the Father. (laughs) We must be drawn by the Father to the Son in order to see the Son, clearly. And what we see here in Jesus' response to unbelieving people after all that he said is that the Spirit doesn't give life to everyone. That's the main facet of this encounter. God is not constrained in any way to bring any person life And this very text shows us that God may well choose to not intrude and halt our rebellion. He may allow us to do what we want to do. In his holiness and his commitment to his own glory and worth and justice, God can and does choose to leave people to their own decisions. To give them to their own lusts and desires, whatever, they, whatever pleases them. And if he were to do that, if he were to do that for every single person on the planet, he would have done us no wrong. He would have done us no wrong. We are not owed anything from him. And he is not constrained one way or the other to do anything but what he desires to do. And so if he chooses to let us determine our own destiny, like for example, if God's, the only reality in God's heart was justice, like if that was the only thing that was actually driving his interactions, righteousness, then he would leave all of humanity in their rebellion because we've all walked away from him. We've all snubbed him. We've all ignored him. We've all defied him. But the God of the Bible isn't just a God of justice. He's not just a God of righteousness. He is those things. Praise be to his name. He is also a God of mercy and a God of love and a God of compassion. And he has in an extraordinary act of grace that will take us all eternity to understand, chosen to redeem a people for himself. He's chosen to unfailingly Bring them from utter deadness to life. And he does that, Jesus says here, through his spirit. It is the spirit who gives life. And yet, John says here that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who didn't believe. Which is heartbreaking at one level. Because it means you're ministering to and loving people who will ultimately reject you. I don't know the depths of this. I know a small sliver of it in pastoral ministry. The feeling of rejection when you poured out a lot is tough. I can't conceive of what he is thinking right now when he says this. When John communicates this in the book, what is going through Jesus' mind? Because in their own natural wisdom, they're going to look at Jesus and they're going to see you're a fraud, we're gone. Or they're gonna say, you're a means to an end, we'd like to exploit you for bread. Be our king so that we can kick the Roman rule off our backs. Selfish ends. They don't see him as the bread of life, they don't see him as the only source in the universe of eternal joy. Jesus knows this and he's loving them right in the middle of it. He's holding out the bread. There isn't anything physically stopping them but themselves at this point. But what happens, verse 66 tells us, after this, Jesus, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, his 12 disciples, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And then John says, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This chapter ended on such a hopeful note. This is not a hopeful note. Before we wrap our minds around the ending, and I think there's going to be another week, God willing, uh, that we're going to look at John 6 before we, we go to a different series. I want to really drill in the rest of our time today into the reality of what's going on here in the crowd. They saw Jesus create food out of nothing. What more do you need? They look at him here after all that he said, and they're like, you know what? We're going to split later. They turn back, no longer walk with him. Think about it. Just think about it. He takes the law of the, conser- uh, of, of the conservation of matter, up in his arms, and he breaks it over his knee and says, I do what I want to do in this world. It's mine. And he feeds 5,000 people who are hungry. And they're okay with that. They're okay with the food. Um, After all, who doesn't want to never worry about food again? But when Jesus says, you know what food you really need? You know what food your soul really needs? Me. You need me more than food. You need me more than anything. That's where they draw the line. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And at some deep moral level, some deep ethical moral level, they refuse to see the truth and they refuse to see through the earthly things that he has envisioned in front of them, the bread of life into the heavenly reality, the spiritual truth that Christ is the provision that every human being on this planet needs They refuse to see that. And they refuse to see that he is sufficient. He's more important to them. He should be more important to them than than economic success, than financial uh, provision, than food, than comfort, than anything. He should be enough for you because man was never intended to live on bread alone. Man was always Intended to forever be dependent on one reality. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And Jesus is God. But they leave. They're looking at God incarnate. Telling them, you need me most. And they leave. They're okay with the signs, the miracles are great, but when you begin to speak, Jesus, we cannot bear what you are telling us. And so we will abandon you here. And it appears that the only only the 12 are left, so Jesus turns to them, he asks them this this question. You can feel the pain in his voice. He knows their response already, but he asks them anyways, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter's answer here is profound. We're going to look at it, God willing, uh, next week. But let's briefly take a look at it here. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Same thing that Jesus was saying. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is an extraordinary statement. Extraordinary. They believe. They see that Jesus is the bread of life. And they've heard him speak. And when they hear him speak, they're like, those are the words of eternal life. When he talks, something in them happens. It's the spirit giving them life. The words that Christ speaks are spirit and life, and they penetrate the soul, they ignite faith and love and adoration of Jesus. And so the disciples here are doing the exact same thing, that, or the exact thing that Jesus has been inviting everyone since verse 35 when he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. That's what's happening to these men, but not all of them, not all of them, which we see here in Jesus' explanation. Notice he says, did I not choose you first? He says, did I not choose you the twelve? And what I want to make clear here is that he does not mean, don't I pick the best people. That's not what he means here. Did I not choose you does not mean that. That's not the thrust of this chapter. That's not the thrust of the entire Bible. If you read through it and you read through the gospel specifically, you'll find here, this is not Jesus trying to find the best candidates for his team, filling out his roster with real winners. That's not what's going on here. They would admit that. They wrote these these Gospels. That's not what's going on here. Jesus' choosing of them is what ignites their faith. That's what's decisive. That's what's ultimate. Not the other way around. His choosing is essential and fundamental to bring about their faith in him. There's an exception here Within the twelve that he chooses, because he says, "Yet one of you is a devil. One of you doesn't believe. One of the ones, I, one of one of you that I chose, I chose knowing that you would betray me." John says that clearly earlier in verse sixty-four. He knew from the beginning who it was that wouldn't believe him and who it was that would betray him. He's always known that it was Judas, and here he comes in verse seventy-one, saying that one of you is a devil. Now, how would Jesus know that he's going to be betrayed by Judas? Is he just really good at guessing? Good judge of character? None of the other disciples knew. Judas had a really sweet deal going on. These guys were casting out demons together. These guys were preaching together. They didn't know that it was going to come down to betrayal. Jesus did not guess He did not judge someone's character. He never guesses. He always knows. He knew what was in man, John 2 tells us. And he knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. Because Jesus' choosing is what ultimately determines about whether or not there'll be faith at the end of the day. For example, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 5, says this to the Thessalonian Christians. I want you to listen to his language very carefully. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Really, Paul? You know he's chosen us? How do you know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That is an amazing statement. And he's just introducing the letter. He's saying that the evidence of God's choosing of someone is in how they receive the gospel. That's stunning. (laughs) Because it means right now, if you trust in Jesus, if right now in your heart there is faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not ultimately because you made a choice, even though you may have. That's not ultimate. That's not decisive. What is ultimate is that there was another choice underneath your choice. And it was God's. Paul is saying here that the evidence of God's mercy in their lives isn't simply the gospel coming to them in words; it is a miraculous response to the gospel, and is it is miraculous if you believe it. It is the Spirit who gives life. It's not because they're smarter. The Thessalonian Christians weren't smarter or more clever or more spiritually attuned or better at making decisions than anybody else on the planet. Paul says it's because God chose you as undeserving recipients of grace. And so Jesus says the same thing. Did I not choose you? Did I not choose you, the 12? Knowing that one of them will not only walk away, but will do so betraying the Son of Man into the hands of sinners to be crucified. He will betray his own friend to be butchered and pinned to a tree outside of Jerusalem. So the point of choosing in this text, the the point of Jesus choosing the twelve, is that he is creating in them what they are, not the other way around not the other way around. And so I want to take this truth that has been swirling around John 6 and I want to turn it and penetrate our lives with it. Paul told the Thessalonians this reality about God choosing them because he wants them to know. It's not a secret. Jesus told the 12, did I not choose you because he wants them to know. It's important and critical to know who saved you. It wasn't just a decision you made one day. It's not like brushing your teeth or washing your car. That's not what happened here. The flesh could never make that decision. What happened in us, what happened to us, was a miracle, a divine act of God. If your faith is in Christ, like Simon Peter, like the Thessalonian Christians, it's because at some point the Spirit gave you life. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. You, you just uh, one day, I mean, you, you saw Jesus as boring, uninteresting, Christianity's a joke. You it, maybe you didn't even have words for it like that. you're just like, "You know what, I'm kind of busy." And then there's this work that was done by you by God, the Spirit of God, in your heart, in your soul, and everything changed. I don't know why I thought that way about him before. But I love him. And I want him. Jesus wants us to know this. This is one of the reasons why John 6 is in the Bible. At the end of John, John's going to say, Jesus did a lot of things. There would not be enough books in the world to contain everything he did. I've given you a small subsection of them. And one of them was John 6. And everything we've just read he doesn't want this to be a secret. He wants to know for those who have faith in him, for those who trust him right now, he wants you to know, I chose you. I called you by name. I pulled you out. You're mine. You belong to me. I brought you near to me. And so as we close, I want to take this truth from John 6, and I want to look at it very briefly through the lens of Ephesians 2 which will show us the depths to which God went to bring life to you and to everyone else who believes. In Ephesians 1, 4, right at the beginning, Paul tells the Ephesians, God chose you before in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. <laughs> like right out of the opening salvo of this letter. He's like, I just want to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. Before the universe existed, God made a decision about you and he saw through to making it happen. He set his redemptive saving love on you, his people, before there was anything, when there was only God. And he didn't do that because there was anything good in us. He didn't do that because he saw something special in us. He did that despite us, despite sin in our lives, despite defiance in us and rebellion. This act wasn't contingent on anything we did. It was because he loved us. Freely loved us, which is precisely what Ephesians 2 tells us. So Ephesians 2, the first three verses are very dark, so walk with me through them. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These are probably the three bleakest verses in the entire Bible. And the scary part is that they're true. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were slaves to sinful passions, so much so that we were referred to here as sons of disobedience. And we were children of wrath, children that deserved justice from God. No one in that state looks at the bread of life and says, I want you. No one. The flesh is... No help at all. And therefore, this is, this three, these three verses here represent a voluntary, a willful deadness inside of us, a deadness and defiance that we cannot self-cure or work our way out of. And so what happens? Does God say, all right, your will be done. Like I said last week, quoting C.S. Lewis, your will be done. Go your way into my justice. No, he doesn't say that. Look at the next verse. Praise God, Paul's not done with this sentence. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul will go on to describe this same grace in verse 8 as saying in no uncertain terms, this is not your own doing. (laughs) You didn't make this happen. None of what I just described happened because of you. It is the gift of God. God made us alive through the Spirit by His Word. It isn't something we did. It's something He did. He, he took us from death, from slavery, from rebellion and defiance to Him into joy that is eternal. I mean, I don't know what kind of lives you lived, but I do not deserve that. I don't. As we close, I just want to focus on one phrase in verse 5. This phrase, it wasn't even going to be in my sermon until a few days ago when I was just reading through Ephesians for fun and started weeping when I heard this phrase. Verse 5, so recognizing... One of the reasons why I want to do this is because I, I know that there are two kinds of people hearing me right now, online or in this room. There are only two... Only two kinds of people hearing me right now. Those who have been made alive and those who haven't. There is no third category. And this phrase in verse 5 speaks to both people. Speaks to people who have already received God's grace and people who are listening to me right now because for whatever reason, God has sovereignly put in your ears these words today. The phrase is very simple. Paul says that we were saved, we were made alive, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And that phrase just lit me up a few days ago. Think about it. He didn't wait for us to get better. He didn't wait for us to figure things out. This verse, this phrase in this verse so precious says that he loved us with great love while we were dead, when we had zero affections for him. When he meant nothing to us, that's when he loved us. Is is that ridiculous? It's ridiculous for me. If you're a believer right now, he loved you at the apex of your rebellion against him. Right there at the height, that's when his love overcame your resistance and said, I will have you as my child. Despite everything, I will take you. I love you. I want you in my family. And then he made it happen by the Spirit. If you're a believer right now, this is why you believe God fought for you, and he never loses a fight, not one. If you're not a believer, then I want you to listen to me very clear very closely. You are not here in this room or listening to me online by accident. Not a coincidence. You are listening to, to me right now because God wants you to hear these words. He wants you to know from this simple phrase, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that you can never outrun the love of God. You can so stop. Stop running. This phrase says that God saves people at their worst in the middle of deadness. And the reason, the reason he does it this way is he wants to show us that nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is too hard for him. And he wants us to know man doesn't live by bread alone or anything else in this world. Man lives from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And right now, God is speaking to you through Jesus in John 6, 35, saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so I'm pleading with you if you do not believe, if you do not trust Jesus right now, if even in your heart maybe you've been playing games, maybe this has been just a game for you, religion, something that you do to fit in to the crowds that you are in circles with, I'm just pleading with you, you gain nothing by your resistance. You gain nothing by your resistance. If you receive him, if you trust him, if you say, I want you, Jesus, I want the bread of life in my own soul. I want you to be this for me. If you say that in your heart right now, you need to know you did not say that of your own accord. It is the spirit who gives life. He is doing something in you right now. He is doing in you and causing you to feel things and be inclined in certain ways that are otherwise impossible without the Spirit. It is a miracle. And this is not something that you did on your own. This is God's work. And so if your faith is in Christ today and you do trust him in the next few moments during this first song, you're invited to participate in communion. We have single-serve communion cups outside. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is our celebration of the cross of Christ. The cross is the very price that was paid so that Ephesians 2 is a reality in your life, so that John 6 is true about you. The work of the Spirit to bring about life is not free. The work of the Spirit to to cause us to receive the bread of life, Christ Jesus, is not free. It had to be purchased. It had to be bought. And the cross is how that happened. The cross is Christ Jesus paying an infinitely great price to ransom us from the sin and the deadness that we see in Ephesians Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, so that God this is why the cross exists, and this is why we celebrate communion each week, we want to recognize and see that in order for God to be able to, to lean into our souls, our dead hearts, and speak words that are spirit and life, the cross had to happen. We had to be ransomed. And we will live through the words of God because man doesn't live by bread alone or anything else in all of creation. Man lives because of every single word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, the glories and the realities of John 6 far surpass any ability I have naturally to communicate them. And I plead with you for help. As I hear this and as uh, my friends here hear your words today, Father, I pray that you would grant us sight. That we would know the truth of these things and that you would open our eyes and our hearts to receive this glory. You are so worthy of our affection and we spend most of our lives doing things and thinking things and saying things that put us in a, in a ridiculously perilous place. We are at enmity with you because of our sin, Father. And so I pray that the, the glory of this reality that you are the bread of life, Jesus, would so infiltrate our souls today and transcend every resistance in us to disregard them, that you would take us as your children and call us into your house, Father. I plead with you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.